Yeah, it's Wednesday the 9th of February. I'm Alec Hogg and it's my pleasure to be hosting the Hour of Power for you this evening. My colleague Michael Apple is in conversation with advocate Erin Richards. She wrote a cracking piece which is uh, getting the tongues wagging amongst the biz news community insights on what Bain did uh, in the whole state capture issue. Also tonight, I spoke with a most interesting young man, Andrew Goodhead. He is going to be riding his bicycle from Cape Town all the way to the Drakensberg Sports Resort ahead of the Biz News Conference number three. Hope you're going to be there with us. Also coming up tonight, it's from our colleagues at the Financial Times of London. The one is to do with the four-day working week. Is it coming? And news headlines that we get every day from the Financial Times. We're kicking off, as always, though, with my colleague Nadia Swart and the news headlines. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Politics and economics are set to collide over welfare payments in the world's most unequal nation. The first clue over which will prevail may come in President Sol Ramaphosa's State of the Nation address on Thursday. Record unemployment and deepening poverty has fueled calls for the government to move toward a basic income grant, which would be the biggest of its kind globally. The debate has pitted Ramaphosa, who has said a basic income grant is a possibility and has raised the idea several times, against Finance Minister Enoch Godongwana, who's seeking to return government finances, hard hit by a decade of overspending, mismanagement and corruption, to a sustainable path. The Pretoria Society of Advocates is calling for the removal of advocate Dali Mpofu from the Judicial Service Commission. Meanwhile, the General Counsel of the Bar said Mpofu brought the advocate's profession and the administration of justice into disrepute. The comments are tied to Mpofu's conduct during the JSC's interview process for the next Chief Justice. He and EFF leader Julius Malema blindsided candidates with unfounded allegations and insults with no evidence to back up the claims. Mpofu and Malema have been accused of character assassination and muddying the entire JSC process. Former DA mayor in Nelson Mandela Bay, Athel Trollope, has joined Action SA and wants to grow the political party's presence in the Eastern Cape ahead of the 2024 national elections. Trollope was announced as the newest member of the Green Party on Wednesday. The former DA member joins the party and automatically becomes Action SA's Eastern Cape chairperson. Trollope left the DA in 2019, citing policy decisions and concerns about the party's direction as the reason for his departure. And now it's on to my colleague Justin for the market report. The JSEL share index is up at 76,400. In the price action, it's all about the paper and packaging manufacturers. Sappy coming out with great first quarter results, up 14%. Mondi following on the back of no specific company news. In the losers, Sassel down on a lower Brent crude price. And Telcom, the country's third largest telecommunications company, 
also down around 3% on the day. And lastly, the Jeltec crypto basket is down 5% for the day. In the currency markets, Rand is stronger against all the major currencies, 15 Rand, 34 cents to the dollar, 20 Rand, 82 cents to the pound, and 17 Rand, 54 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,830 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 29,500 Rand. Brent crude is trading at $91 a barrel. The premier cryptocurrency will put you back 680,000 Rand. In the financial news, just share the shareholder activist group has accused Standard Bank of isolating itself from its peers by continuing to flirt with financing carbon-intensive projects even as its main rivals spurn such deals amid growing climate change concerns. Last week, French and Chinese oil giants Total signed the final investment decision to proceed with the East African Crude Oil Pipeline project, a planned $10 billion deal on which Standard Bank shareholder Industrial and Commercial Bank of China is listed as an advisor. The controversial project aims to tap the oil reserves of poverty-stricken Uganda and transport the fuel more than 1,400 kilometers across the East African nation, as well as neighboring Tanzania, where it will be exported from the port of Tanga. However, detractors argue that the project will displace small-scale farmers and poses a serious risk to wildlife and sensitive Eastern African ecosystems at a time when much of the world is looking to reduce its reliance on fossil fuels. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. As promised, our featured interview of the day is with my colleague Michael Apple and advocate Erin Richards. Erin, welcome. It's the first time that I've had an opportunity to interview you. Thanks for coming through to oh, our studios. Fantastic to be here. Thanks, Mike. Before we get into why you're here, which is to discuss an opinion piece you've you've written, it's up on biznews.com. Go check that out. For somebody who doesn't watch the news and doesn't know who or what Bain and Company is and what two commissions of inquiry have found them to be implicated in, just lay that foundation for us. Mike, very simply, without going into, into too much unnecessary detail, we're all au fait with, with the extent to which state capture has, has grasped this country. And uh, long story short, Bain has been seriously implicated in that state capture. Uh, specifically, the focus to date has been on its work at SARS. Um, it consulted at SARS for a period of roughly 27 months, between 2015 and 2017. And during that time, there was basically a wholesale destruction of SARS, including its um, enforcement units that focused on, on organized crime. So we've had two commissions of inquiry, first the Nugent Commission and now the State, the state Capture Commission, that have seriously implicated Bain in, uh, in state capture. You have written and opined asking the question whether there is a link between Bain and company, their capture of SARS, and the possible advancement of the illicit economy or organized crime. That's quite a, a space to venture into. What sparked this idea? Mike, look, in all honesty, it wasn't a comfortable piece for me to write. But while I was reading Athel Williams' testimony, I came across evidence of an email chain dated 2015 that basically 
was setting up a meeting between senior South African police officials, Interpol, senior Italian police officials, our minister of police, and representatives from Beretta, the firearms company. Bain was the one organizing that meeting. That really grabbed my attention, and it, it's got me asking some what I think are some very serious and important questions. And I always found it curious that when Bain was consulting to SARS, one of the hallmarks of that period was the wholesale destruction of SARS's enforcement units. And I'd never really understood that. Why was it? Why was there this necessity, this extreme pursuit of destroying SARS's enforcement units? And when I read those emails, I just wondered if there might have been a connection between illicit trade and organized crime and this destruction of SARS's enforcement units. So that's what got it started. How did these emails come to light? There are one of two options, and I'm not entirely sure which, which one it is. Here's what happened. After the Nugent Commission, which first implicated Bain, Bain did two things. First, it asked Athel Williams to come and perform basically an ethical oversight role in the organization. And it contracted Baker McKenzie to do an investigation into its work with SARS. Now, the documents, these emails, either came from Bain and were given to Athel, or they came from Baker McKenzie and were given to, to Athel. Not to put too fine a point on it, we, we don't know, we haven't been able to verify these emails yet, and they weren't unfortunately properly interrogated in the, in the Zondo Commission. So just so your audience knows, we're working on the assumption that these are legitimate emails, but that legitimacy hasn't been tested yet. It hasn't been tested, but it also hasn't been challenged. And that's an important point to make. Yes, very much. And, and thank you for that. I mean, if we look at the, um, at the State Capture Commission, Bain initially wanted to cross-examine Athel Williams when he gave his testimony after blowing the whistle. Then Bain was told by the Zondo Commission that they were welcome to cross-examine Athel Williams, but that then they would also have to put their version in front of the commission. And after they were told that, they withdrew their application to cross-examine. And so we have not actually had Bain's side of the story here. I want to take us to one line in the emails and, and get your response and your thoughts on that. Now, who's speaking here is Vittorio Massone. He was one of the Bain SA partners. And he's writing to Beretta, the Italian arms manufacturer's Dr. Micheletti. Quote, I am only an intermediary, and these gentlemen are very structured and diligent. Isn't it nice to know that? Right now, Indeed. they are also obsessed with wiretapping. It's been a year trying to take out the commissioner. Now, the commissioner at the time, in September 2015, was Ria Piecha. Just by chance or happenstance, she would be suspended a month later. And that is assuming that this meeting takes place. But that is a concerning line. Quote, it has been a year trying to take out the commissioner. And if you look at the timeline at the time, that's Ria Piecha. Is that, is that a worrying line to you? Look, there are many, many worrying things about this meeting and, and the email chains, and that's certainly one of them. You know, firstly, this reference to wiretapping is, is, is suspect. If you're not doing anything illegal or anything shady, why are you worried about wiretapping? Second, this reference to, to the commissioner at the time, who, as you point out, was subsequently suspended, that indicates that, that Bain has inside knowledge that it, that it, shouldn't, that it shouldn't have. So the, entire, the fact that this entire discussion was even happening is highly irregular and raises very many questions. Uh, another line that stands out to me is once again Masone writing to Beretta 
And he says one of the important terms is public order policing and the issue of non-lethal weapons is very important to position Beretta. They have received specific instructions from the president to withdraw and replace the RS. Now, the RS, RS-200 or RS-202 is a shotgun. Are we talking about President Jacob Zuma here, do you think? It certainly seems that way. I'm not sure which other president we would be referring to. You know, but this to me is is very concerning because essentially what's being discussed here is some kind of procurement. Okay, so it looks like there was at some point a policy decision to move away from lethal weapons to possibly less lethal or non-lethal weapons. And that's why there is this this phrase by Masone where he says that Beretta should position itself about around non non-lethal firearms. So essentially what you've got here is Beretta coming in to have a discussion, it looks like with the minister at the time, about a procurement issue. Now that is highly irregular. Ministers don't get involved in procurement. Procurement happens through procurement offices at the various departments and and SOEs. This is fertile ground for corruption, is when you start having ministers meeting with people like firearms traders. Just to point out, we have reached out to one of the parties named in the emails and... Uh, he has absolutely no recollection of uh, such a meeting ever taking place. He is certainly one of the people who is named as the contact person by Bain. Get in touch with Mr. Molati Moremi, who was head of stakeholder relations in the police ministry. I reached out to him and I said, have you ever had anybody from Bain contact you? What was this meeting all about? Did it uh, did it occur? I'm not exactly pleading the fifth, but I cannot recall was the response there. Yes, and I, I always love those responses because it's not an admission, but it's also not a denial. Yeah. Now on Monday, Lord Peter Hain, he uh, writes an opinion piece. It gets carried by the Financial Times, a very influential publication in Europe at least, and he calls on the UK government, the US government, to cut ties, to freeze out Bain um, because of the findings from both the Nugent and the state capture inquiry. And he wants the US, because it's a Boston-based company, uh, even though they are global, to withdraw the license from Bain to operate. What, what do you think of Lord Haynes' calls in the Financial Times? I think it's I think it's extremely necessary, and I wish that there was more similar action actually happening in South Africa. There was more boycotting of, of, of Bain. Essentially, what Lord Hain is doing is he's applying significant significant public pressure and international pressure to Bain. Um, and, and South Africa, as the, as the place where all of this malfeasance happened in the first place, um, should have been the first to hop on board that train. But unfortunately, we, we, we haven't seen that. You know, one would think that with the amount of evidence that's been brought forward by Bain, Bain's obfuscatory conduct, their clear non-compliance with our laws, with our constitution, one would have thought we would have seen a mass boycott. We would have seen people who had contracts with Bain finding lawful ways to withdraw from those contracts. We would have hoped to have seen people resigning from Bain, South Africa. But instead, we haven't. We've just carried on as as, as normal, which I find concerning and, and honestly quite disappointing. So I'm very grateful to people like, like Lord Hain and Athel Williams, who continue to raise that alarm bell internationally. So here's a an eye-watering uh, figure for you that Lord Lord Hain threw out yesterday in an interview with uh, Alec Hogg, the editor. Here. 
He said that Bain had made 55 million pounds from doing work for the British government over the last few years. He wasn't explicit about an exact time frame. And that equals 1.14 trillion rand. Let's compare that to the fees that uh, Bain derived at the South African Revenue Service Poultry, 167 million rand. Well, here's here's something that that also to me just makes very little sense. I mean, look, firstly, I don't think it was just 167. I think Bain has been that that was one project. You know, I suspect that Bain consults or has been consulting quite broadly across state entities, and for a protect, protracted period of, of of time. So I think that there's significantly more money. Um, at play. And also, if we look at these emails and the meeting that, that we think might have happened and Bain's role, it also raises the question about whether or not there are illegitimate kickbacks that are, that are being paid either to Bain or to its employees. So who knows how much of our money they've got. You speak about the possibility of, of them having done work at other state-owned entities or in government departments. Do we actually know where Bain has worked or where they are currently still working? No, exactly. Uh, And this is a serious bone of contention for me and it's something that drives me nuts. And it's why I always advocate for transparency, transparency, transparency. Give us the details. I mean, this is one of those moments where there should be full and frank disclosure about where Bain has worked 1994 onwards and where they are working now. Why is this information not forthcoming? Why is no one pushing for this? Why is Parliament not asking the questions? Why are the opposition parties not asking? I mean, it's an obvious, obvious question and it is hugely important. And and so this is why I'm so concerned about this email because what we're seeing here is not the full picture. It's a microcosm of a macro situation. And the only reason we know about Bain and SARS is because Athel Williams had the courage to blow the whistle. So what we need to do is look at Bain. We need to interrogate and investigate as much as we can, work out what happened, work out the patterns of corruption that manifested, and then we need to start extrapolating. And we need to start looking at whether that has happened in other consulting firms, in other auditing firms, if their pattern manifests in the banks, the law firms. Hopefully, we will get whistleblowers coming out more frequently after Athol's kind of you know lit the torch and 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 led led the way. But this is an opportunity. We need to not take a siloed approach and think that it's just Bain and just SARS because I don't think it is. I think it's much deeper, much much deeper than that. Well, Athol Williams says it would work to. Bain's advantage if you just cast the eye at SARS. Well, <laughs> that's one of Bain's angles. Bain's other angle is first look at SARS, and if you must look at us, look at one of our employees, Mr. Vittorio Massone. And whoops, sorry, but he went rogue, and it's not our fault. Bain is not corrupt. Maybe there was a problem with Massone. Sorry about that, but he's he's gone. Okay. Um, still consulting to a company that has offices in South Africa, but but be be that as it may. So Bain has adopted as a, a strategy of epic deflection. And anyone who believes, given the evidence that we've seen, that the problem was one man, Mr. Vittorio Massone, it's not a it's not a viable proposition at all. I mean, it's clear from some of the contracts that Bain was concluding and the approval processes that those contracts had to go through, that those contracts, dodgy as they were, had to work their way up to international partners at Bain, senior management internationally at Bain. So people knew what was happening here and they signed off on it. And those need those issues need to be investigated. And then we need to take that and look at this meeting in the context of everything else that's on 
unfolded. Yeah, Ethel Williams says Vittorio Massoni was celebrated from Boston. You could hear the cheers because of all the, the, the money the man was generating for Bain through, through various projects. Um, there was something called a President's Project, and, yes. and that alluded to, to President Jacob Zuma. I want to ask you about They've been found to be unscrupulous. The state capture inquiry said that many of their actions were unlawful. How do you deal with private sector companies like this? Do you cut them off at the knees? And I, I ask this in particular because if we look at Bell Pottinger and the immense harm that it did to South Africa, uh, heinous uh, campaigns it ran, immoral, you wouldn't be allowed to operate anymore their license was withdrawn and they have closed down. Should Bain's executives in Boston, including Mr. Massone, drag him out of Italy, put them before a court of law here and then test this version and, and then make findings against him? Is that something that has to happen so that South Africa can get over this? Because Bain's mea culpa, it just doesn't seem to be enough. Look, I mean, as for what we can do, there are, there are numerous prongs to, to, to this answer. The first is what the state can do. Under South African law, you can prosecute a company and employees criminally. So we could do both. Technically, we could go after Bain, we could go after Missone, we could go after whoever else um, is, is implicated through, through these investigations at Bain. Obviously, if you're going to go after individuals like Vittorio Massone, you're going to have to use the Extradition Act to extradite him and bring him back to South Africa to face trial. But all of that would only happen after a very, very extensive investigation. And we don't even know at this point if that investigation is going to happen. It, it is a recommendation in the Zondo report. We'll see what the, what the president's response to that is. Okay, so I want to go over to Bain's statement because it is in, important to, to put their side across as well. Uh, they released a statement in the wake of the findings of the Nugent Commission and a lot of it was a, a cut and paste job, to be honest. Um, if you look at the very latest statement um, when they were uh, deciding whether or not to, to be a member of Business Leadership South Africa. Yeah. So here it goes, uh, quote, the commission's hearings, and it's referring to Nugent here, and the final report published last week have laid bare the disarray in which SARS now finds itself with both moral and performance severely damaged. Contributing to that outcome was not the intent of the Bain project, and we clearly made significant errors of judgment in taking on this work. As a firm, we have been shocked and saddened by our involvement with SARS. We let down our clients, our people, our alumni. Most of all, we've let you down, South Africa. We accept that through various lapses in leadership and governance, Bain South Africa became an unwitting participant in the process that inflicted serious damage on South Africa. Heartfelt? <laughs> no. And my response to that is, yes, you have let South Africa down and you should bugger off. Uh, and if they don't want to, then we should kick them out. Um, that, that should be our response. You know, as much as we hope that law enforcement and the NPA do their investigations and pursue the prosecutions, we as South Africans also need to start standing up and saying, if we want to protect our constitution, if we want to protect an ethical society, then we need to act ethically. And part of that is if you are associated with people like Bain, when you find out what they're up to, get them out, get rid of them. You know, that's, that, that's, the, that's the second leg in our own personal responsibility that, that we all carry. As for whether that's heartfelt, no, I don't think it is. As for whether it's accurate, no, I don't think it is. I don't buy for a second that they are shocked and saddened by anything. This looks to me like it was intentional. And 
this this potential meeting that may or may not have happened in, in, in 2015 also raises some very serious questions. Because if it turns out that Bain or its employees were somehow profiting from organized crime, then it would make sense that they so ruthlessly pursued the destruction of SARS's enforcement units. So I, d- I don't buy for a single second that there, that there was any lapse in judgment. To me, on the evidence that I've seen it, as it stands uncontradicted by Bain at this point in time, it seems to me that there's something far more um, dubious at play. Well, let's just remind uh, the person watching here that Bain was in contact with President Jacob Zuma and Tom Moyane far in advance of him becoming the SARS commissioner. Now, they had no business talking to Tom Moyane, but it seems that they had the inside track on who he was going to become, the position he was going to be appointed to, and they were just helping him figure out what he needed to do as part of a restructuring agenda when he became the boss there. Correct. So we're not we're not thinking anything up here. This is not in the ether. No. This is this is all coming out of the commissions of inquiry. Correct. You know, and, and I mean the, the whole the whole chain of events just speaks to coordination. You know, firstly it's 2010 and Vittorio Massone arrives in South Africa. About a year and a half, two years later, he starts having multiple meetings with the president and also Tom Moyane during during the same during the same period, although maybe a little bit a little bit later. But at the time of those meetings, there was no contract with the South African government in place. No reason at all for a consulting firm or partner at a consulting firm to be meeting with the president. And Athel Williams made this patently clear in in his evidence. He said that he could think of no legitimate reason for such meetings, especially in the absence of any any contract. And you're right, Bain seemed to know about Tom Moyane's appointment many months before he was actually given that that, that appointment. So, you know, if you start connecting the dots here, it it becomes very difficult to believe that all of this was, was a lapse in judgment. What did you meet the president? out of a lapse of judgment? Did you not did you not know that that was irregular and that that shouldn't be happening? Um, do you know that we have a constitution? Do you know that we have procurement laws? It, it, just, it just doesn't make sense. The version makes no sense at all. Well, Bain had managed to hook a very big fish here under this president's project. And Mr. Massone wrote quite openly in his emails back to Boston about the progress he was making with former president Jacob Zuma. Mm. So when we when we speak about this particular email uh, and the September 2015 meeting whether or not it took place where they referred to a president there the only reasonable inference one can draw there is not the president of Beretta or the president of Business Leadership South Africa mm. it's the president of the republic. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Have you had a chance to have a look at the opinion piece Athel Williams has written recently? No, I haven't read it yet. I have seen that it's up on the website, but I haven't been able to go through it yet. Perfect, because that's a very nice segue into how we end this. <laughs> and that is we are going to hope to get Athel Williams, the Bane whistleblower, uh, on this program next week. And then the three of us can have a nice conversation. I want to end by quoting from Zondo's first report in relation to Bain. And it says, quote, one of the few instances where President Zuma was himself directly and personally involved in the activities and plans to take over a government entity. And Bain's involvement is a clear example of how the private sector colluded on state capture. Andrew Goodhead, you are going to be making an adventure to the Biz News Conference, riding 
1,500 kilometers from Cape Town. What made you want to do this? How's it, Alec? It's uh, good to be here. Thanks for having me around. I really love BizNews. I have always wanted to attend the BizNews conference. And it was on a long day at work that I decided it was time to go, but I needed a, an exciting way of getting there. <coughs> Why? I, I mean, most people are going to get on an airplane or drive their cars. I've always loved cycling. Uh, tour cycling is, is my passion. It's quite a phenomenal opportunity to be able to be going slow enough to experience the surroundings, but fast enough to actually get there. Tour cycling, is it a big thing? Tour cycling is a big thing. It involves carrying all your equipment on your bike, very much like hiking, but you're on a bicycle. Oh, this is a mountain bike, not a motorbike. Not a motorbike, a bicycle, yeah, pedal, pedal power. But you are going to get a bit of assistance. You're not pedaling the whole way. I'll be pedaling the whole way, but I'll have some assistance. I'm going to be riding an e-bike, but I'm going with an e-bike and a difference. I'm going to be towing behind me a solar panel, and the solar panel will charge the battery as I ride and make it a bit, a, a bit faster and sort of an off-grid e-bike experience. Are e-bikes usually internal combustion engines or other type of engines? Um, you do get petrol-powered sort of assistance. They're known as the old mopeds. But this one is a, is a battery-powered electric bicycle. Okay, so this is battery-powered, but on top of that, it's solar battery-powered. Yes, a, a normal e-bike could last maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 kilometers until the battery is drained. And I'm going to be cycling 220, 230 kilometers per day. I don't have the time to wait for the batteries to charge and there isn't really a grid to plug into in the middle of the crew. Uh, so I'll be carrying my own charging capacity in the form of solar panels. Mopeds go quite quickly. Uh, how fast does your e-bike travel? I can travel up to about 50 kilometers per hour. At that speed, my legs just start spinning. But I'll be trying to maintain a, dis a speed of sort of 25 to 30 kilometers. That would put me on the saddle for about eight hours a day. If I go any slower, the sun will set before I get to my bed at how the end you, of the day. How do you train for something like this? I, I haven't done that much training, but I've done a lot of cycling in my life. I cycle to work every day and then just some stuff on the weekends. Andrew, we're talking about eight hours in the saddle Every day for seven days. That's right. That's a heck yeah. of a It'll <laughs> be a sore bum at the end. <laughs> and what, where are you going to stay along the route? I'm going to be staying with BizNews community members. So the BizNews tribe have been very generous in offering accommodation. Um, and I'm going to be staying in And hot meals, I hope, and a hot shower after eight hours in the saddle. Yes, I think they will be more... Um, Grateful for me having a hot shower than, than me. <laughs> have you got a decent seat? I, mean, I just think of a bicycle saddled in eight hours a day. I have my favorite seat, and it's been with me on a lot of adventures. Um, my bum sort of it's comfortable formed its then. shape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's understand. You're leaving Cape Town on a Sunday, and you're going to arrive at the Drakensberg Sports Resort Next the week, following Monday. On the Monday. Yes. And we'll all be there, the whole business team will be there, and the Drakensberg uh, Sports Resort staff. We're all going to be waiting for you, so you'll get a good reception. As I limp in. But along the route, what do you do? Is it an opportunity to maybe think a lot? 
what keeps your mind busy during those long days? I'll be sure to be listening to, to the Power Hour. Um, oh, so you're going to have podcasts on? I'll definitely okay. have podcasts. Good, good. It's a, it's a routine in my life anyway, so that'll be something to, to keep me going. And then South Africa is a beautiful place and there's beautiful people. So I will be taking in the scenery and chatting to all the people I meet en route. I'll also be taking special notes of some features along the way. I'm a civil engineer and I find bridges quite fascinating. So both the bridges and the road surface will be of particular interest to me and my bum. That's <laughs> your bum. <laughs> it, it's quite interesting you talk about bridges because there are some pretty old bridges along the, the routes that you're going to be going. Is there historical interest for a civil engineer to actually stop and have a look at the way that they used to build bridges maybe 100 years ago? Absolutely. There's an old technique called dry packing. They don't use any cement and it's just the friction of the rocks. It's a phenomenal art that's that we've lost, unfortunately. There's a whole website dedicated to mountain passes of South Africa with a historic write-up of the, the particular passes. So I'll be passing through a few. One of the big ones is Oberg Pass from the Tangwa Karoo up into Sutherland. It's a big hill, and I'm excited to, to slog it out. Well, I hope it's not raining or that there's a lot of cloud cover that day because you're going to certainly, on a big hill, need the support that you can get from your E part of the bike. The, the solar part, yes. Um, so the, with the collection capacity that I have, I'll be towing behind two and a half square meters of solar panel, and that will give me about 360 watts at peak, peak performance. And to put that into context, a professional cyclist like Chris Froome can put out about 400 watts continually. So I'll have almost a Chris Froome to help me out in the middle of the day. Obviously, during the morning and evenings, the... The power is reduced quite significantly to zero. Andrew, I'm just trying to think about when you go through the Karoo, where it is really hot at the end of February. Are you during that time going to be able to go faster if the sun is beating down? I, the power is going from the panels straight into the battery, and then I can draw it as I want. So not necessarily faster, but my battery will be charging more during the peak hours of, of the day. And then I'll use the battery as I need, as I go up a hill or if there's a headwind, the rest of the time I'll be pedaling to, to keep it going. What about things like sunburn or refreshments along the way? That's a, a real thing. A athlete needs the, the sustenance. So I'll be wearing long sleeves, sun cream. I've made a cool, a cool rim for my helmet. So it's a helmet with a hat and then just good old water and potatoes, future life. I, I enjoy future life. Yeah, <laughs> good food. So you're going to also be taking wine to share with business community members who have kindly offered a bed and a, and a hot plate a for friendly you. house. Absolutely, I'll be leaving from the Cape, so it's only fitting that I take some of the Cape's goods along with me and uh, share the joy that the Cape produces. So hopefully uh, each night there'll be good conversation and uh, we'll share some rational perspective on, <laughs> on the journey. <laughs> oh boy, you say all the right <laughs> things. And we're going to be sharing some chats as well. You and I will be talking at each of your stops. Uh, what are you going to be looking out for that, that we can discuss in those little crossings? Yeah, I look forward to engaging with the community. Um, it'll be a long 
maybe lonely road in the Karoo. So it's good to know that there's um, support from the business business tribe. I'll be passing many interesting things, uh, the landscape, lots of sheep, maybe a few eagles. <laughs> and um, one of the most interesting things will be the solar stats of how much I'm collecting. And that'll be a more technical technical interest of is this actually a viable option to to go off grid and for people in in remote communities is this uh, something that could happen more regularly the third biz news conference at the magnificent champagne sports resort in the drakensberg will be held from the first to the fourth of march it's lining up to be the best so far we've got a strong lineup of speakers a single delegate cost is 7750 For couples, it's 12950 Book your seat by going onto the Business Investment Conference button on the right-hand side of the business.com homepage. See you there. You're listening to the Business Power Hour brought to you by the team at business.com. Hello and welcome to Working It. I'm Isabel Barrick. Today's episode is about the four-day week, meaning getting paid a full-time wage for only 80% of the original hours. Understandably, it's a very popular option among a lot of workers and a less popular working style for employers, many of whom tend to have a long list of arguments for why it wouldn't work for them. Now, the other one is productivity. Well, how do you measure productivity? What that says is, you're not measuring productivity. You're using time as a surrogate. And then it translates to, well, I'd have to recruit 20% more people, or I can't close my company for a day. I don't close my company for a day. People will say, size, well, Unilever's doing it. Microsoft's doing it. Manufacturing won't work. Volkswagen are doing it. And then the final one, which is usually the killer, is, well, it wouldn't work in medicine. Well, medicine's already using shifts, point number one. Point number two, the Americans, good example, kill 250,000 people in their health service every year as a consequence of misdiagnosis occasioned by stress and overwork. And you only have to answer the question, do you want to be operated on by the doctor who's been working 20 hours straight or the one who's fresh? That's Andrew Barnes. He's very enthusiastic about the four-day week, and he would be. He's essentially a salesman for the concept. He runs Four Day Week Global, a group that lobbies, produces research and assists businesses in implementing reduced hours. He became really passionate about the concept after he stumbled across the idea while reading a magazine on a flight. I was reading a couple of articles about British productivity, and this is back in 2017, and they were saying that the Brits were productive for two and a half hours a day and the Canadians for one and a half hours a day. And I wondered why that was happening I wondered if that was happening in my business and I wondered what would happen if I changed how people worked, whether in fact I would get better productivity rather than less productivity if I went to a four-day week. The business he's referring to there is Andrew's main business. So well before four-day week global was imagined, Andrew was the founder of Perpetual Guardian, which is New Zealand's largest statutory trust fund, That means it manages wills, trusts and estate planning for many families in the country. 
And did you take any advice from the many consultancies on this or did you just go for it with a pilot? <laughs> I winged it. <laughs> I would love to say that, you know, this was a really planned thing. I, I got off the plane. I, I folded my head of HR and said, I've got a great idea. I think we'll do a four-day week. And so there was dead silence <laughs> on, on the phone. Well, by the time I got back, she deleted every email I'd sent on this and was working on the assumption that I was mad <laughs> and that I'd forgotten about it. And unfortunately... I came back and said, no, 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 I've put it on a post-it note. Let's try the four-day week. As far as the board were concerned, I announced it on national television before I told them. When the workers started on this, were they cautious? I mean, it seems like a sort of almost too-good-to-be-true situation. Were, were people hesitant about taking up the offer? Somebody videoed the actual original announcement and there is cautious laughter <laughs> when we talk about it. Because obviously, you're right. I mean, why would somebody give me a day off a week? There's got to be a catch. And obviously, people start to think maybe it's about job cuts, maybe it's about pay cuts. But what I was saying to the team is, look, this is an honest compact between me and you. I think that this will be better for you working 